Thank you for being with us today. We would love to have you join us in person. To partner with us or to give online, go to www.upperroomohio.com. We hope you enjoy this message. I tell you, um, can you guys hear me all right? Good. Uh, you know, the, what God is doing to, to set people free from opioid addiction is amazing. And uh, it really has, it's not been about a person, it's been about God. And it's been about a team of people. And uh, that man, um, Matt Simmons, is one of the best men walking on the planet. I'll just tell you that. He really is. I would like you to take out uh, the Word of God if you brought your Bibles today. If you haven't brought your Bibles, um, then please do in the future. We pre we're going to preach from the Word of God. We preach from the Word of God every Sunday. And I don't care what flavor you use, vanilla, chocolate, meaning paper or electronic, it doesn't matter to me. Just whip it out and turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 1. And we're going to read beginning with verse 16. This is Paul's letter to the church at Rome. He says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now turn over to Romans chapter 3. And we're going to begin a little further in the letter, beginning with verse 21. Romans 3, 21. And Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And finally, turn to the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. May God bless the reading of his holy word. This last week, we celebrated, the world celebrated, an event that, that I won't be around to celebrate when it reaches a thousand years. None of us will be, at least not in this life. But we celebrated the anniversary, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. 
For it was on October 31, this last Tuesday, 500 years ago, that this man, Martin Luther, nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, the Cashel Church. Now, I know you're saying, Steve, I can't read those. And don't be alarmed, I can't either. They're actually written in Latin because he wrote them in Latin and nailed them to the door of the church in Latin. So even if it was larger and even if we wanted to, we couldn't read them. Unless, of course, you've had a classical education and can read Latin. Anybody can read Latin here? Huh? Pig Latin, okay. <laughs> that would be a different kind of Latin. Today, I want to talk about the significance of the Protestant Reformation for us today. And I want to submit to you that the Reformation is still ongoing. The church is still being reformed. I want to tell you that the Reformation has been a success because it was a move of the Spirit of God to reform the church and return it to the gospel message, the message that Jesus gave and through his apostles in the Scriptures. Today, when we leave, I hope that you will feel a greater appreciation for our heritage and for what we believe as Protestants and a greater commitment to the Word of God. Martin Luther was born on November the 10th, 1483 to Johannes or Hans and Margaret Luther, which we now pronounce Luther. They were actually a fairly wealthy family. Hans owned and operated several copper smelting operations in Germany. And so, although their faces don't reveal it, by, by, uh, by all accounts, they led a, a better-than-average life. You will notice they're not smiling, and of course, these were the days before makeup. And you'll find that most paintings of people who lived during this time, and for a few hundred years thereafter, they're never smiling. You know why? because of the condition of their teeth. They didn't have toothpaste. They didn't have ways to prevent the erosion of their teeth. So as adults, most of them, their teeth were discolored if they still had them. So they would be painted without a smile. The Luther family lived in what is called the Holy Roman Empire. It today encompasses what we would call Germany, the Netherlands, Switzerland, and northern parts of France. The Holy Roman Empire was controlled by the Roman emperor. He controlled the armies. However, the pope, the head of the Catholic Church, controlled the church. And thereby, according to Catholic teachings, he controlled salvation. You say, how? Because the Catholic Church believed that the church itself was the continued incarnation of Jesus. Jesus in the flesh, if you will. And that... that Jesus literally had handed the keys of the church to Peter, and Peter and the apostles then carried on the activities of Christ as if they were Christ. And therefore, the teachings of the Catholic Church, handed down through the centuries, had as much emphasis and as much authority as the Scriptures themselves. I want you to look closely at a portion of this, which is squared out, because this is the area where Martin Luther lived. It's called Saxony. When Luther was six months old, 
he was actually moved with his family from Eislabin, which is where he was born, up to Mansfeld. He spent his first six, year, six years of his life in Mansfeld. Like all Catholic children, he had been baptized the day after he was born. He was born Catholic. All were Catholic. At the age of six, he, was, he left Eislabin and was sent to Eisenach, where he would be educated through his primary education, through his secondary education, until the age of 18. He would receive a classical education where he would learn Latin, where he would learn to speak, uh, he would learn Greek. And of course, since he was German, German was his native tongue. At the age of 22, excuse me, at the age of 18, he left Eisenach and moved to Erfurt, which is located here, and began his university training. After four years of training, and at the age of 22, he decided that he was going to become a lawyer. Can we just pause for a moment right there? <laughs> did, you, did you feel the ground kind of shake? <laughs> just saying. I'm just saying. He was going to be a lawyer. A lawyer. But, as it would happen, soon after he began his legal studies, he was on a little walk up to a neighboring community called Stoddernheim, just north and east of Erfurt. And as he was walking through Stoddernheim on that day, on his way back to Erfurt, he encountered the worst storm of his life. He literally feared for his life. Lightning was crashing all around him, fierce rain. He thought he was going to die. And so he cried out for safety. And he cried to Saint Anne, one of the saints of the Catholic Church, and he vowed that if St. Anne would save him from the storm, that he would leave his legal studies and he would become a monk. Well, he survived the storm. And as you will soon learn, Martin Luther was not one to give up on a vow. And so he went back to Erfurt. He contacted his father and had the joy of telling his father that he was leaving the legal studies and he was going to become a monk. Now, as you might imagine, that wasn't the greatest of news for his father to hear. I mean, he had paid a good deal of money to have his son trained and gone through university and now was just entering upon a noble career as a lawyer, a noble career, and was likely to make a little money. Not only that, but when he heard that his son had chosen to become a monk, that was even more problematic. For you see, monks were celibate. They didn't get married. They didn't have children. So Hans and Margaret, who obviously needed reasons to smile, were not real happy to hear that their son was going to become a monk and that they may not have grandchildren. This particular stone marks the place in Stoddernheim where Luther stopped and vowed that if God, if St. Anne would save him, he would become a monk. So at the age of 22, on July 2nd, 1505, he made the vow, and shortly thereafter, Luther entered the monastery, the Augustinian monastery in Erfurt, Germany. Now, it's important for you to notice at this point in time that when he became a novice at, this, at the monastery, that's just your first year at the monastery, he was given a Bible to read. 
This was probably the first time in Luther's life that he had read a Bible. Because you see, Bibles weren't regularly printed and distributed to the people. They weren't even seen as that important. Since the fourth century, the Holy Bible had been translated into Latin. And that was the only authorized translation. It was considered to be a sin against the church to literally translate the Word of God into another language so that, you know, God forbid people should be able to understand it. And so it was in Latin. And very few people had one, and they would go to church, they would go to Catholic church, they would participate in the sacraments, they would hear the priest read Latin and so forth. Most of them couldn't even understand it because it wasn't their native tongue. But they just knew if they participated in these rites, they would hopefully be saved. That was the idea. So maybe for the first time in Luther's life, he gets a Bible, and he's only allowed to have it for the first year. But he reads enough of it to get a conception of the very holy God, the righteous God, the righteous God who has wrath and who punishes those who disobey him. And this affects Luther in such a way that for the next several years, he struggles with the realization of the Holy Father in contrast to his own darkened soul. He, he does whatever he can to try to rid himself of his own sin so that he could hopefully be acceptable to the Holy Father. So he goes to confessional and he confesses his sins every day, not just for a few minutes, but for hours and hours. It is recorded that he spent sometimes as long as six hours in the confessional booth confessing the minutest little details of sin. A, 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 a cross word or a cross thought. He was obsessed with the fact that he was so dark. He was obsessed with the fact that he was a sinner, that he was fallen and was struggling with all he could to get to the Holy Father by confessing. But the more he confessed, the more he dug himself his own hole. To the point that finally, the leaders of the monastery said, we will not even listen to his confessions. I mean, I'm not sitting in that booth for six hours with that guy. I mean, some of the leaders were like, you know, if he really came in with some juicy stuff, like, you know, he'd lust it, or if he committed adultery, it'd be worthwhile. But he's in there talking about a little, you know, bad thought that came to his mind. I can't deal with this. So finally, they said, they went to the leader of the monastery, whose name was Johannes von Staupitz. I just love that name. It just makes you want to spit when you say it. You know what I mean? Johannes von Staupitz. He was the leader of the monastery. And they said, we're giving Luther to you. You deal with it. So Staupitz begins to hear his confessional. And of course, what they had said was the case. He's going on and on and on, trying to confess his sins and get them out of him so he can be acceptable to the holy God. And finally, Staupitz says, no. You don't have the correct understanding of God. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you back the Bible. Oh, that was not a good idea. I'm going to give you back the Bible. And I'm going to transfer you from Erfurt over to Wittenberg, where I'm located, to the monastery there. And in Wittenberg, I will be able to watch over you. So he gives Luther back the Bible. And that man reads the Bible. And he eats the Bible. 
and he's just all over it. And four years later, he's taking his bachelor's degree in Bible. And then right after that, Stalpit says, no, 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 don't stop there. You should get your doctorate. So within a year, he goes on to get his doctoral degree in Bible. Now, I'm going to tell you that that was very, very weird in those days. Because again, the Bible didn't matter so much. It was the teachings of the church. It was what the Pope said and the bishops that mattered the most. And so most monks and theologians spent their time discussing the traditions of the church and reading you know, the, the, the theological teachings of the church and spent their time there reading what the Pope had said and not reading the Word of God. It seems strange to us to think that today, but that was the reality. But Luther is now reading the Bible. And as he reads the Bible, more and more he begins to see an inconsistency between the teachings of the Catholic Church and what the Word of God says. That the Catholic Church and its teachings have strayed from where the Bible had said they were. Indeed, he not only begins to read, but he actually begins to teach the Bible. And so for four years, he's teaching Psalms and Romans and Galatians and Hebrews. He's literally reading the portions of the New Testament that were at the heart where the heart of the gospel will be portrayed. God's just like feeding it to him. And he's just eating it up. And the more he eats it, he's like, what is this teaching? That doesn't match up with scripture. It's all coming to him. And yet at the same time, he's been so inundated with the teachings of the church, he feels horrible inside. It's as if there's a war going on in his mind. Until the early 1517. In early 1517, Luther has what is called the cloaca experience. Say cloaca with me. Cloaca. And that's a Latin term. You, now you know a Latin term. And it's an important one because cloaca means sewer or outhouse. Yeah. So next time you're in Rome and you've, you know, got to go, you just ask for the cloaca. Something like that. Well, it was, it was just, there was a tower you see at the monastery in Wittenberg called the Cloaca Tower. And it was called the Cloaca Tower because in the basement of the tower, there was an outhouse. And so Luther, some years later, writes about what happened to him, and he calls it the Cloaca Experience. Here's what he says. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. He's talking about the words of Scripture. Namely, quote, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. He's talking about Romans 1.17. In it the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Therefore, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God. Namely, by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through the open gates. Thus, a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. And hereupon, I ran through scriptures from memory 
And I found other terms of analogy as the work of God. That is what God does in us, the power of God in which he makes us strong, the wisdom of God in which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. And I extolled the sweetest word, he's talking about the Bible, with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the word righteousness of God. Thus, that place in Paul for me was truly the gate to paradise. He had come to see that salvation was not dependent upon his works or whether he could clean up his own heart through confession after confession after confession. But salvation, literally the gospel, was the good news that we could be saved, we could be justified in God's sight, we could be seen just as if we had never sinned by placing our faith in Jesus Christ alone. And then we would be saved. It was a gift, the grace of God. There are two principal doctrines that came to Luther's mind during this time that I want to highlight briefly before we move forward. And that is, as Luther had his cloaca experience, he began to understand that salvation was through faith in Christ alone, that it was a gift. He had to juxtapose that with the teaching of the Catholic Church. You see, the teaching of the Catholic Church at that time was that when we died, there were three possible places we could go. One was heaven. Two was hell. The third was purgatory. Now, I didn't believe in purgatory until I was a counselor at junior high youth camp. And then, <laughs> I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. But the Catholics had a firm belief in the teaching of the church was there was this third option, it was called purgatory. It was a temporary place. So here was the idea. Here is how you are justified or saved in the Catholic church. It's not a one-time act of God where he forgives you as you place your faith in him, but it's a lifelong process. It starts from the moment you're baptized as an infant. And then the next step is 10 to 12 years later when you are confirmed in the church. And then you begin to participate in the sacraments of the church through the Eucharist and through baptism, which you've already, already done, and through marriage and through penance and through confession and through the various sacraments of the church. Each time you, as a member of the church, participate in these sacraments, the Catholic teaching was that God's grace was imputed to you. It was, it was, it was excuse me, it was imparted to you. It was imparted to you. So you get engaged in an act, and as you did what you were supposed to do, the grace of God would then come to you. And through this process over your whole life, your soul would be continually purified. And if it was purified enough, then you would be a saint, and you would go straight to heaven when you died. But for most of the masses, that was not the case. You weren't quite ready to beam up. And so instead, you would end up in purgatory. And in purgatory, there you would be on a temp there for a temporary basis until your soul was further purified enough for you to be released. You would have to undergo further punishment, further purification of your soul, and then you could be released to go to heaven. If you, however, had not carried through with the, the sacraments of the church, if you'd not been baptized, etc., etc., if you committed mortal sins, you would be condemned to hell. That was the teaching of the Catholic Church. And now here's Luther reading the scriptures. And he's like, where's purgatory? And, and, 
And where does it say that, that, that we have to somehow cooperate with God's grace to, to earn salvation? The scripture says, I'm justified as a gift by God, not over my life, but now when I place my faith. It's a one-time thing. I'm saved. I'm set free. Now, there's still work to do in my life as God sanctifies us. But I don't do that to earn salvation. The second doctrine which came to alive to him as he was reading and teaching the scriptures was the primacy of scripture. The primacy of scripture. As he read the Old Testament, New Testament, he saw no place where it said that the Pope or the bishops were the final arbiters of the truth of God. He, he, he saw that the word of God was the end. The word of God was the ultimate authority. And if the words of man did not line up with the scriptures, then the man had to go. It didn't care if it was the pope or if it was the bishops, if it was the teachings of the church. Scripture alone. Scripture alone. Well, hold this in your mind because that's where Luther is at the beginning of 1517. New scene. At the same time that that's going on, this guy, Cardinal Albrecht, it doesn't spit quite as much. Cardinal Albrecht is the cardinal in that area. He's the cardinal of Magdeburg, but he's an ambitious cardinal, you see. He wants to be the cardinal of two areas. However, the rules of the Catholic Church at that time were that you could only be the cardinal of one area. Well, not to be denied, he decided he would talk to the Pope about it. So he goes to Pope Leo X. Again, not smiling. Pope Leo X. He says, Pope, I would like to be the cardinal of mines as well. Well, it just so happened that the, card, or that the Pope was engaged in a very ambitious building campaign at that time. You see, he was literally in the process of building St. Peter's Basilica famous church you see in, in Rome today. It was being built even then, back here. And he needed money to build it. So he said, hmm, I'll tell you what, Cardinal Albrecht, I will let you become the Cardinal of Mines if you can pay me 23,000 ducants. Now, ducant was a denomination of money, but that was a lot of buckolas, okay? A lot of money. So Albrecht begins to think, and he says, hmm, I know a wealthy family in my region, and I could go to them, and I could borrow that money, 23,000 ducats. But here's the problem. How would I pay it back? Hmm. So he comes up with this idea. He says, I'm going to go to the Pope and ask the Pope to send one of his indulgence preachers into my region and have him get people to give money to the church. We'll talk about what an indulgence is in just a moment. But here's the idea. Have him send one of his best indulgence preachers into the area. And then what we will do is we will split the proceeds 50-50. 50% of the money goes to the Pope to build St. Peter's Basilica, and 50% of the money comes to me so that I can pay off my debt. Pope says, done. So he borrows the money. He pays the Pope. He becomes the Cardinal of Mines as well. And in comes the indulgence preacher. And his name is Johannes Tetzel. Oh, I love that name, Tetzel. Kind of rhymes with pretzel, which I like. So Tetzel comes into the region, and he begins to preach indulgences. Now, what is an indulgence? An indulgence is a pardon. An indulgence is I get to heaven straight away. And the way I do that is by paying money. 
An indulgence is, is, a, is a certificate, literally, given by the church that says because you've given X amount of dollars, you, in essence, get to go to heaven. Now, there was only one further step there, you see, because the Pope figured out that, hmm, it's one thing to tell somebody who's now living that they can go straight to heaven, but what about all those loved ones of theirs that are in purgatory, that are suffering? What if we tell them that if they give money, they not only can help address the pardon for their own soul, but they can get their loved ones released from purgatory? Oh, yeah, like that. And so that's what Tetzel did. He came into the region and he began to preach indulgences. And I happen to have one of his sermons. Here's what he says. Listen now, God and St. Peter call you. Consider the salvation of your souls and those of your loved ones departed. You priest, you noble, you merchant, you virgin, you matron, you youth, you old man, enter now into your church, which is the church of St. Peter. Visit the most holy cross erected. And what they would do is they would, they would, they would put up a cross just like that. This is Tetzel preaching. He would put up a cross. he said, visit the most holy cross erected before you and ever imploring you. Have you considered that you are lashed in a furious tempest amid the temptations and the dangers of this world and that you do not know whether you can reach the haven? He means heaven by that. Not of your mortal body, but of your immortal soul. Consider that all who are contrite and have confessed and made contribution will receive complete remission of all their sins. Listen to the voices of your dear dead relatives and friends beseeching you and saying, pity us, pity us. We are in dire torment from which you can redeem us for a pittance. Do you not wish to? Open your ears. Hear the father saying to his son, the mother to her daughter, we bore you and nourished you. We brought you up and left you our fortunes. And you are so cruel and hard that now you're not willing for so little to set us free? Will you let us lie here in flames? Will you delay our promised glory? And then Tetzel would close by saying, remember that you are able to release them. For as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Will you not then, for a quarter of a florin, receive these letters of indulgence through which you are able to lead a divine and immortal soul into the fatherland of praise? Now, back to Luther. Luther's just had his cloaca experience. And he's just seen the word of God saying that salvation is, is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. It's a gift. And he hears that Tetzel is out preaching in the area and telling all of the people that they can buy their way into heaven. And not only that, but their lost loved ones as well. Mm, I'm telling you, it was not a happy day for Martin Luther. So we get to the 95 Theses on October 31st, 1517. He drafts the 95 Theses and he posts them on the door of the church. 
He writes them in Latin, remember? And, and it's important to know that none of the common people could even read that. All Luther was trying to do was invite the academics and the theologians to come to a debate. That was it. That's how you did it. They would post notice of an idea to be debated on the doors, and people would come. He only intended for the academics and the theologians to read this. That's why it was written in Latin and not in German. In fact, he was so certain that the cardinal and the pope, if they really knew the truth, that they would correct the church and stop Tetzel from this preaching, that he decided to draft a letter to Cardinal Albrecht and attach a copy of his 95 theses. And he sent it to the cardinal the same day that he posted them on the door of the church. And he said, yo, cardinal, oh, not quite like that, but yo, cardinal, listen, I'm sure that if you read this, you will see that this guy, Tetzel, has to be stopped. That's a modern-day translation. Okay? But he does not know that indeed this whole thing was already part of the scheme of Albrecht and the Pope to raise money, not only to pay off cardinal, the cardinal's debt, but to build St. Peter's Basilica. So when the cardinal gets his letter, he sends it to the Pope, and the Pope was not happy. You see, what ended up happening is when he posted these 95 theses on the door of the church, people grabbed them, and they sent them to a local printing press. Now, the printing press had just been invented 60 years earlier. They sent them to Nuremberg, and some people translated them into German, and they began to print these puppies. Boom, boom, boom. It started sending them out all over the place. What they needed was a good copyright lawyer is all I got to say. This is a clear sign of copyright infringement. If such things had existed then, I would have taken up the cause. I just want you to know. But, but they, they essentially, there were no copyright laws. So they're just translating and they're printing or sending them all out. And the common people are getting these and they are just incensed. They're like, yes, yes, we are tired of Rome sending people in here and trying to stole money of us out of us to build some building in Rome. Yes, Martin Luther. The young monk was gaining a following quite fast. But it's important for you to know that he had no idea that that was even going on and never intended. And I pause there to tell you this. The Protestant Reformation started with that moment. We have no idea, even to this day, how what we will do will affect the kingdom of God. You don't know. Only God knows. You don't know if you might be the next Martin Luther to change your community or to change the world around you. You don't know. You don't have to know. But here's what you have to do. You have to follow the word of God and you have to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit takes you to the word and says, yes, it's alive. And he shakes you and he tells you to step out and to do this. You do it. You don't have to know why. You do it. The word of God is alive. My wife, she says this all the time. She's here, I can say this again. She's like, it's alive. You know, and I, you, don't, you don't believe my beautiful little wife could ever do that, but she'll turn around and she'll go, it's alive. <laughs> it's alive. Well, when the Pope heard about this, the Pope was not happy. And the Pope, over the next four years, sends two prominent church leaders into that region to try to force Martin Luther to recant from what he is saying in his theses, to try to recant from his, his statements about indulgences that they're lies, to try to recant from his making Scripture the primary thing and even challenging the, 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 you know, the, the authority of the Pope. 
And here's what Martin Luther says to them. He says, I stand on the word of God. If you could show me in the word of God where what I'm telling you is wrong, I will recant. But until you can show me in the word of God, I will not recant. And they said, well, look at the church's teachings here and the church's teachings here and the church's teachings here. And he's like, fully on all that. Unless you can show me in the word of God where what I'm saying is wrong, I will not recant. So in early January of 1521, the Pope excommunicated Martin Luther from the Catholic Church. In those days, that meant he was, he was sent outside of salvation. He basically was cast into the fires of hell by the Pope, who had the authority of salvation, you see. And not only did the Pope do that, but he slapped an interdict on all of the churches in that area, stating that you cannot administer the Eucharist, you cannot administer the sacraments, I will close the church doors if you support Martin Luther. Now that was, that was an effort to reach the masses, some of whom thought, I have, to, I have to take the Eucharist, I have to participate in the sacraments or I lose my salvation. He did both of those. And then he called his friend, Charles V. Charles V was the Holy Roman Emperor. Don't you like that hairdo? I got to get me one of those. So Charles V was the Holy Roman Emperor and he said, I need your help. I want you to hold a conference and I want you to force that Martin Luther to recant publicly in front of the whole Holy Roman Empire. And if he doesn't, I want you to declare him a heretic and an outlaw. So in, in the spring of 1521, the Diet of Worms was held at Worms in Germany. It's pronounced Worms, even though it looks like worms. And it's not a special diet to lose weight. A diet, a diet is another word for a conference. So it was a conference of leaders across Rome. They came together, and it was the same scenario. They tried to get Martin Luther to recant, and he said the same thing. If you cannot show me in the scriptures, if you cannot show me in the scriptures where I've gone wrong, I will not recant. I rest my authority on the scripture alone. And then he made these famous words. Here I stand. God help me. Amen. He had been promised free passage from Wittenberg to, to Barms and back. But he knew that by the time he got back to Wittenberg, he would probably be arrested and he would be tied to a post and burned at the stake for being a heretic because shortly thereafter, Charles V labeled him an outlaw and a heretic, which meant he could be killed. But as it happened, Luther had a friend. No, that's not Gimli from Lord of the Rings. That is Frederick the Wise. And Frederick the Wise was the ruler in the area of Saxony where Martin Luther lived in Wittenberg. And Frederick the Wise had actually been at the Diet of Worms. He was a very powerful man. He was an elector for the Holy Roman Emperor, which means he was one of seven people who could choose the Holy Roman Emperor. So the Pope had to, had to be careful about what he did to Frederick the Wise because of the fact that the Pope needed to have a good relationship with the Holy Roman Emperor. So Frederick the Wise heard the defense of Martin Luther and he was touched by it. And he commissioned a kidnapping. He didn't want to know the details so he could have plausible deniability. But he, he actually commissioned that certain people would stop the coach that Martin Luther was in on his way back from Varms to Wittenberg. They pulled him out of the coach. 
They stripped him of his monk's garb. They put a knight's clothing on him, stuck him on the back of a horse, and off they went in the night to the Wartburg Castle near Eisenach. And there for the next 10 months, Martin Luther stayed incognito. He grew that black beard that you see. He changed his name to Junker George. I mean, you can't even write this stuff. This is an amazing story. <laughs> he stays there 10 months. He's literally squirreled away in a room in the castle. And so what he does changes the course of history again. Because here's what he says he's going to do. I'm going to stab the beast right in the heart. And how I'm going to do that is I'm going to take the word of God in Latin, the New Testament, and I'm going to translate it into the language of the common people. And so in the next 11 weeks straight, he translated the entire New Testament from Latin into German. Shortly thereafter, it was released to that same printer who obviously didn't understand copyright laws, and he, and he starts printing these New Testaments. So that by the, by the time Luther dies, over 100,000 copies of his New Testament and Bible have been released to the common people. Now for the first time, they can read the word of God themselves. They don't have to have a priest who can translate Latin. They don't have to have a pope through which they can go through to understand what God wants. They can sit before the word of God. They can read it and allow the Holy Spirit who infills them to illumine their minds as to what God means and what God wants and what salvation truly is. After 10 months, Luther leaves the Wartburg Castle and he goes back to Wittenberg. And in 1522, he begins to preach. He goes into the church and they build a pulpit which is higher than the altar. You see, in most Catholic churches, even to this day, there is an altar which sits in the front of the church because that's where the mass is performed. But Luther said, no, the most important thing is the preaching of the word of God. The word of God is the power. For when people see the gospel and hear the gospel, they will receive the gospel. So they began to build churches where the altar was not even there, and instead, the pulpit. This is not a real pulpit, okay? A pulpit was right in the center. Why? Because the preaching of the word of God would become central. And not just preaching for the sake of preaching, but biblical preaching founded on the word of God. And not just biblical preaching, but provocative preaching. I mean, they didn't skip over the tough verses. Luther would literally start at the beginning of Genesis 1, and he would preach each verse, and he would go through the entire Bible. And all the reformers did that. They would preach through every verse of a book. John Calvin preached 353 sermons just on the book of Isaiah. Consecutive sermons. Now today, most people would be up, and they'd be out of here. I mean, like... What are we going to talk about? Isaiah. Okay. Isaiah. Isaiah again. Isaiah. Yeah. 353 sermons. They preached the word of God. But people flocked. They were hungry for the word. They flocked. And churches across Germany began to be filled with people who weren't seeking the mass, but were seeking to hear the preaching of the word of God because it brought life to them. The Bibles were so valuable that the churches had to chain the Bibles to the pulpit because people kept stealing the Bibles from the churches. All right, I just have to, I just, you know, I'm, I'm going to meddle a bit. But I just have to ask you, where are we today? Are we hearing more preaching or less preaching in the churches across America? Preaching's on the decline. 
We've canceled Wednesday night services. We've canceled Sunday night services. We've canceled special this, that, or the other. We don't teach anymore. Many churches are that way. Not this church, but many churches. I submit to you that the Reformation is still the Reformation. It is still on. It's still alive. The gospel is still growing. And it only happens when we preach the word of God. We need to preach the word of God more than what we're doing. All right, I'll get off that horse. I'm going to close by telling you there are five scriptural principles we take from the Reformation, and I'll be done. We call them the five solas, and they're taken straight from Luther's teaching. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Sola Christus, and Soli Deo Gloria. Sola Scriptura. I told you earlier that in Luther's day, there were three sources of authority for the church. The magisterium, which was the pope and the bishops, was at the top. The scriptures and the teachings of the church were considered to be co-equal. So the Bible was not central in the Catholic Church. It is still not central in the Catholic Church. To this day, the Catholic Church is still organized such that the magisterium, the pope and the bishops determine not only what the scripture says, but they determine what is scripture. And when the pope speaks from the chair of Peter he, and speaks ex cathedra, he's considered to be infallible, as if God is speaking himself. Luther said, no, scripture alone, sola scriptura. You should take what I'm telling you and you should read your word. And if your word says something different than what I'm telling you, you should follow the word. You should test and discern everything you hear. If it's not supported by the word, you don't do it. If the word says to do it, do it. Sola scriptura. The Bible is unlike any other book ever made, ever. It is the word of God. The scripture says eternal life is to know God. That the spirit, Jesus said the spirit when it comes within you will remind you of what I have said. How's that going to happen? It's going to happen when we read the word of God. Now we have multiple Bibles sitting around our houses and many of them collecting dust. My goodness, we even have it on our phones and we can carry it with us and it reminds us, it speaks to us. But do we avail ourselves of it or is it just another book that collects dust? People gave their lives, their very lives, so that we could have the word of God in our language. We must see this. We must know this. We must revere what God has given. Scripture alone. Grace alone. Faith alone. Christ alone. Salvation doesn't come and we're not, we're not justified through a lifelong process of, of, of trying to do things to earn God's favor. And then he gives us a little bit of grace as we go. And then hopefully, hopefully we can get in and we get into purgatory. We can get out after our soul. No. One need only read the, the plain scriptures which Luther was reading. Ephesians 29, for by grace, it's a gift. Charis means gift. For by grace, you have been saved. You have been justified. It is, you've been set free. It's as if you never sinned. And this, and this salvation is through faith, not because, not on your own doing. It is the gift of God, not because of works. What more did, did Luther need to read? All of this penance and confession I've been doing is not going to save me. Salvation only comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone, so that no one may boast. It's not about us, it's about God. 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Uh, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. All. Man. Woman. Everyone. Everyone. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. You cannot earn it. We've all sinned. We all deserve the punishment of death. Eternal damnation is what we deserve. But Jesus says, I will take that for you. I will be your propitiation. I will satisfy the wrath of God through the pouring out of my blood. I almost came to tears today when I heard Martha singing singing the song that she wrote. It was so perfect for what we're talking about. It was the sacrifice of the lamb. It was Jesus' blood on the cross that set us free. And our only hope of salvation is to receive that as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ alone. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or a satisfaction for for the wrath of God by his blood to be received by faith. It could not be clearer. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and finally, to the glory of God alone. Paul would say this, from him, everything in my past, from him, and through him, because God sustains everything right now. He sustains it all. He always has. Through him and to him, all my future, all of that are all things. To God be the glory forever. Amen. Some people don't understand the glory of God. They think the glory of God, is God's some sort of glory hound. He just needs us to tell him how wonderful he is. That could, that could be the, that's, that's so wrong. Do you think God needs you to tell him how great he is? Give me a break. Give me a break, give me a break. Kit Kat bar. So, I'm sorry, it's the way my mind, my mind works. It's a little off, as you can tell. The glory of God, it's not about telling God how great he is. He doesn't need to hear that. We need to see it. I want to see the glory of God. I need to see the glory of God. Because when I really see the glory of God, I then understand first and foremost and forever, that it's not about me. There's nothing that I do that really impresses God. Is that a newsflash to you? (laughs) I got a lot of initials after my name. Do you think that impresses God? That just means I went to school a long time. He's not impressed. But some people say, well, you don't know how rotten I am. You don't know how, you know, I've been living in a habitual sin and how, you know, God's, God's love and his, his sacrifice of Christ on the cross is not sufficient for me. I'm lost. Well, that's just as arrogant. That's just as arrogant. Do, don't you see that when you take a position that you are so rotten that, that the blood of Jesus Christ is not sufficient for you? Who do you think you are? Yeah. <laughs> let me come up with this. Let me smack you once. It's all about him. It's always all about him. And when you come to realize that, and when you accept him by faith, then you see the glory of God. You see the glory of God. In 1546, on February the 18th, Luther died. 
he went to his hometown, Eiselben, to preach a sermon with his two sons. Luther had four children, two daughters and two sons. His first daughter died at the age of seven months. His second daughter died when she was 12 in his arms. Luther knew pain. He knew loss. He took his two sons to his hometown to preach. He preached on February the 14th, and a few days later became so ill that he knew he was dying. So he called together all those who were around. He wanted them to watch him die. You see, the Pope had said that a heretic dies a horrible death. And so just a slap at the Pope one more time, he wanted everybody to stand around and watch him die, just so everybody could say, no, nah. he was pretty peaceful. Glory. Luther takes out a piece of paper and he begins to write down on the paper his last will and testament. He starts off by saying, I'm well known in heaven. I'm well known on the earth. And I'm well known in hell. He went on and on. And in the end, his last breath, he said the words I've written above. We are beggars. It is true. Our salvation is not in our hands. It's in the loving God's hands who gave his son that we might have life, eternal life and have it abundantly. In 1529, Martin Luther wrote, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name. From age to age, the same. And he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body 
they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. I don't know, I don't know where you are today, but God does. If you today do not know the justifying grace of God, then come, come up here at the end and let me pray with you and confess your faith and today leave knowing that you are saved, that you are justified, that you are cleansed, that you are set free. That is the gospel. It is God's great gift purchased for us through Jesus Christ. Some of you, maybe you know him, but you've, you've gotten lazy. And you want to come and you want to kneel and you want to recommit yourself to the word of God and to the spirit of God moving through you. Because you now see the foundation we talk about, the five solas, and what was paid to bring us this. Then come and kneel and have your time with God. Let's stand together as we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love, for your mercy, for your grace, for the very faith you give us. And most of all, we thank you for Jesus Christ, your only son whom you gave that we might have life through faith in you alone. We pray, God, that you might burn this, brand our hearts with this truth. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone, all to the glory of God. And now go with us, for the service begins not here, but when we leave. In Jesus' name, amen. Word of God. I'll never forget uh, my father, Greg Simmons, the founding pastor of this church. His father, my grandfather, Dorsey, walked this land and before we ever even bought the land. And just he just knew there was something special going to happen in this, this region, Tip City, Ohio. And I, I remember going to my grandfather's house many, many times, but the most important things that I ever received from him was I asked him one time when I knew he was getting older, my grandmother had passed away. And I said, you know, what, what is it that is the most important to you? And he, I'll never forget, he says, Matthew, Matthew, if you don't know the word of God, you need to, to learn it. Because like me, he says, one day your eyesight will be gone. And he says, then I can't read it on my own. And I wish I would learn more scriptures. I wish, and this was somebody who served God his whole life founded many churches. So I just remember that as a child, it's like, or a young man, it's like, my goodness, he could have told me so many things, but it's the Word of God that you need to have it near and dear to your heart. And we've all heard the stories out of China, out of so many places that do not get the honor and the privilege like you have today to have free access to the Word of God. That, that Luther had the free access that changed everything. He had it for a year, then he got it back. That's just something that speaks to me. So put your hand on your heart. I just want to pray over you that this seed today that doesn't go unnourished, that it doesn't go unwatered, 
And that some tree just grows from the birthplace of this seed that Steve has planted today. In the beginning, it said that it began, it says in the beginning was the Word. It says at the end there was the Word. And what I love too about in the beginning in the garden, there was a tree. Then Jesus died on a tree. And then all the trees that are going to be in heaven that you know you can even make paper from. So I just say over you that this seed becomes this crazy big oak tree that brings forth fruit after fruit after fruit that one of you in this place will change your high school, one of you will change your workplace, or one of you will change a Muslim family that was destined for hell because if it wasn't for you to be in their lives, that that makes a difference, and that family is going to make a difference. So I just speak that over you. Lord, we seal this word upon them, sealed upon their hearts, that you did give us something that Sue would say, it's alive for us, that you cared so much about us that you would give us something that can be with us. And each time we read it, it brings forth something new. In Jesus' name, let them be world changers in here. Let us be changers of the, the kingdom that we can just come forth like Martin Luther, Lord, that just reformation, that it never stops, not even since 1500, not since the death of you at the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go change it. Amen.